Good evening. Good to have you here. Let's turn to uh, Daniel chapter 11. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 11. Last, uh, last week we were starting the last part of this particular chapter in Daniel, dealing now with the future, dealing with what is yet to come. And we took a big skip between verse 35 and verse 36 from the time of uh, the Syrian king, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a forerunner of the Antichrist, to the Antichrist himself in, uh, in verse 36. And I think at, at, at some point we will see the distinctions between the two, even though Antiochus spent much of his time, certainly unknowing, but <laughs> spent much of his time uh, describing for us in his life and in his uh, in his uh, ways, uh, the actions and the feelings of, of, of the Antichrist who is yet to come. The one thing for sure that they had in common was that they were both haters of the Jewish people. And in effect, when you hate the Jewish people in that way, you hate the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so... It's, it's really uh, critical for us as, as believers in Jesus Christ to remember what our, our spiritual heritage is because we are ourselves as believers in Jesus grafted in to the Jewish people. In effect, to, the, to those who, who truly believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And... If there was ever a time that we see the proof for the existence of God, we truly then see it in the Jewish people and in the nation of Israel today. Because without it, there is no Bible prophecy. Without them, there is no real motivation to even look at and understand the things of the days to come. But we have to admit there is an Israel, and because there is an Israel, there is a God of Israel. But as it was in the beginning, so it has been and it will be until Jesus Christ returns. And that is that there will be an opposition. There will be an anti-Christ. Now, I, I didn't mention this last time, but I think we've gone over it many, many times before, that when we consider anti-Christ as far as a title or a name, we're, we're, look, we're looking at it as, as uh, from, from the standpoint that anti, of course, usually means against. 
So he is against Christ. And that's obvious. But it also represents one who represents Christ in the sense of being a deceiver of, standing in the place of Christ. And this is how we will see him shortly as we get into our text this evening. So as we look at verse 36, and I want to start there because we were there last week in verse 36. I don't know what got into me. I didn't have anything ready here. Okay, I'm ready now. I'll start reading verse 36 because this is the one verse we focused on last week. And of course, we'll, we'll see the importance then of this particular verse in relation to the rest of the chapter. We'll just turn this light off here. And the king shall do according to his will, the king being now the Antichrist that is yet to come. And the king shall do according to his will. So it tells us that he's only going to do what he wants to do. And he wants to do it the way he wants to do it. So this, this is the mindset now of this person that we call the Antichrist. The king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself. Much like, of course, Antiochus Epiphanes exalted himself, uh, in, even in the place of uh, of going into the temple and, and uh, desecrating the temple, what is called the abomination of desolation. Uh, the, the, the first one, which was the, the pattern, and then there will be a greater uh, abomination much later. So he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. The word marvelous, as we saw last time, is the word blasphemies. So he shall speak blasphemous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. In other words, he's going, to, he's going to prosper until the time of the wrath of God within that time period of the seven years before the return of Jesus Christ. And shall prosper till the indignation or the wrath be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. <laughs> so it is, what is determined then, of course, is what God has has already uh, determined, what God has already predetermined uh, to, to happen. And then neither, it says, shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he, him, or for, for he shall magnify himself above all, but in his estate shall he honor the God of forces." And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most, uh, thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. That is the section that we are going to be dealing with this evening. So it was a very popular idea in prophetic circles, this being a good number of years ago, I'd say over the last 50 years, about 40, 50 years ago, 
that the Antichrist, and again, this was the popular idea, that the Antichrist was to be a person who would rise up out of what was called a revived Roman Empire, most likely a European of Roman descent and heritage, possibly a homosexual, and certainly an apostate Jew. That was a popular idea. And those notions were founded upon the text that we're studying this evening. That was, of course, considered before many events began to take place, leading up to, and especially because of, the main event that took place on September 11, 2001 in New York City. But even before all of that, and I mentioned it last week, from the time of the birth of the state of Israel in 1948, uh, through the many wars that they had between 1948 and 1967, one major one, of course, was 1956, and then there was uh, the 67 Six-Day War, the 73 Yom Kippur War, and then many different kinds of battles that took place after that. But with all of that in mind, prophecy uh, students began to look at a lot of different things that they hadn't looked at before. They kept pressing about this Roman Empire, this revived Roman Empire. And they always focused on Europe. They always focused on, on this area where, you know, well, it was surrounding Italy and Rome is in Italy and the Vatican's in Italy. And they considered, you know, there was a lot of problems with the Vatican because of the Catholicism being considered as being part of the problem in the end times and whatnot. So everything was focused there, but there was something being left out, even though there were some good commentators many, many years before that actually said there's a problem arising with this religion called Mohammedism, or as we call it today, Islam. But we didn't focus on that. Yeah, there was Egypt, and there was Egypt in the Scriptures, Well, there was Syria, and there was Syria in the Scriptures. There's a couple of other new kind of countries, Iraq and Iran, but we know them as what? We we knew them as Babylon and Persia. Those were there, but there weren't the, the connections weren't being quite made, really. And 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 consider this until things started happening in the in in the Islamic world. And Islam began to spread, spread throughout Europe, came to the United States, came to, went into all different kinds of areas. Interestingly enough, in in Southeast Asia and and, and in particular in in some of those countries like Indonesia and all, uh, the Muslims, I mean, became tremendously uh, large as far as uh, the population in those times. And again, prophecy experts and students began to take note. Well, something's going on here with this thing called Islam. And if you remember as well, that after 1991, that um, the destruction, as it were, of the the Soviet Union and, and, and that then turning Russia and all of these other states into independent states, 
What was interesting about that was what was the Soviet Union at one time it began to be split up into many different little countries. But most of the countries in the south of, of Russia, uh, like uh, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and other uh, nations that ended in the word Stan, were all Islamic. And they were all above, in the north, above Israel. And they had always said, well, you know, Russia is right above Israel, so Russia is going to be the one. But it isn't so much Russia as we began to realize the spread of Islam was now an important factor in understanding more and more of Bible prophecy. So even before all of that, you know, with, with, with what happened in, in, in 9-11 and all, there were some researchers who were keeping their eyes on the growing Muslim population through the, through the Middle East and it spread throughout the world. And, and they began to take more notice of many scriptural passages in the writings of the prophets indicating this great connection to the inhabitants of nations mentioned in the Word of God and their relationship to the nation of Israel, because everything really has to surround itself around Israel. If, if Israel's not at the center of prophecy, uh, then we're wasting a lot of time here. Israel has to be at the very center of prophecy to understand what's happening today. So after the speculations of a ten-nation European confederacy no longer adding up, and a rethinking had to take place, because the Roman Empire was made up of East and West, as I said last week, and not all ten toes could be on one foot. More emphasis was placed in on the growing influence of Islam and its role in the geopolitical landscape, not to mention its religious implications in the current backdrop of global terrorism, which some world leaders still refuse to acknowledge. So with these things in mind, let, let's continue to build on this profile then of the person called the Antichrist in Scripture. Let's first of all remember that the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle that there were already many Antichrists. So there was a spirit of Antichrist already in the world. Well, how many of you remember that the spirit of Antichrist really entered into the world in, in Genesis chapter 3? Through the serpent, who was Satan. So, I mean, if there's any antichrist around, I mean, Satan is the main one. But if you look at 1 John 2, verse 18, it says, Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that antichrist shall come, even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So even back in John's day, almost 2,000 years ago, even then, there had been prophecies, of course, of this Antichrist. No doubt that some of his understanding of Antichrist came from, uh, from knowing the book of Daniel and this section that we're looking at today. Even as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, he focuses on the individual, but he says even now there are many Antichrists, that is the spirit of Antichrist, whereby we know that it is the last time. How much more now is there this spirit of Antichrist than in the time of John? I mean, it's grown exponentially, you see. And then he says in 1 John 4, verse 3, he says, And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, 
And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. So already there was that spirit of Antichrist that said that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, or every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. To say that Jesus does not come from God, in other words. And then you add to that in Second John, verse 7, it says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, one, one verse in First John, go back to First John uh, chapter 2, gives us a more specific characteristic of a person who could be considered antichrist. So you go back to 1 John 2, verse 22, and he says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ? He is antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Now this is very important for us to understand. When you deny the Father and the Son, you're saying that there is a God, but God cannot have any sons. Therefore, Jesus is not the Son of God. Now, there's one major religion today that teaches that, and that is Islam. In those very words, denying the Father and the Son. They will tell you that God cannot have a son. And they will say then that Jesus is not the Son of God. So, keep that in mind. All I'm asking you is to keep these things in mind as we look at the Scriptures. It's interesting that John would write that these antichrists were deceivers who deny that Jesus is from God, but in the book of Revelation, he would not use the word antichrist at all. You can go through all of the book of Revelation, and John never uses that word. Instead, he would use the expression, the beast, regularly from Revelation 13 all the way through chapter 20. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, This is what the Antichrist is called. So go back to Daniel 7 and look at verse 8. And we see what he is called here. It says, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn. That's the Antichrist. He is the little horn in verse 8 here. Before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. Now, I know that we studied this already. I want to come back to this later, not, not now and not until we finish all of chapter 12 next, whenever we get there pretty soon. But there, there's some, some considerations that I want to make on, based on this particular verse once again. So it says, Before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. And the great things that were being spoken, of course, or at least in the vision that was given to Daniel, was uh, they were blasphemous things. And again, every time that he speaks, he speaks blasphemies against God. So that, that's something to remember and to consider. If you go to Daniel chapter 9, and, and this is just purely review as, as we get ready to look at these next few uh, scriptures. But in Daniel 9 verse 26... He is referred to as the ruler who will come. Now that's 
literally what it means, the ruler who will come. It's written this way in the King James. It says, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, <laughs> excuse me, and the people of the prince that shall come. So that's the phrase. The prince that shall come literally means the ruler that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. But, but the focus really is on that one phrase, the prince that shall come. And um, that is another term that can be used for the Antichrist. Now in Daniel 11, verse 21, and you don't have to turn there because I think you're already in chapter 11, but we covered this a few weeks ago. In Daniel 11, verse 21, he's described as a vile, vile person. Contemptible person. In effect, the, the study of Antichrist began there. Because Antichrist will be a vile person. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul calls him that man of sin, the son of perdition. Literally, he calls him the man of lawlessness and the lawless one. He can also be seen as the rider of the white horse in Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 actually describes the opening of the seals and the seal judgments. And it says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of, th of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. A bow... No arrows. The idea is to deceive and to let people think this person comes in peace. And again, Paul in, in, in 1 Thessalonians would tell us uh, to beware when you hear peace and safety because then sudden destruction would come. And that is in reference to the person of, of, of Antichrist. Now, the phrase that we want to deal with, begin to deal with in verse 37 of our text is, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. So, as you continue on in this thought, we're getting this, this uh, profile now being built up on a person named Antichrist. Uh, the king shall do according to his will. He will, he will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, which means he will speak blasphemies. And he shall prosper till the indignation shall be accomplished. But then it says of this, uh, of this person, Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he himself shall magnify himself above all. But that first phrase, Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers, is what we want to focus on now. In much of Daniel chapter 11, dealing with a description of the king of the north. Now remember that uh, much of the history that is given in chapter 11 deals with two of four kings. Two of four kings that came out of, uh, uh, well, after Alexander the Great had passed away, the, you know, the Grecian king. 
and the Greek Empire had, had, uh, take, had, had defeated the Medo-Persians. And then these four kings, they were generals actually under, under uh, Alexander, went into four regions of, of this known new world empire. But the two that were, were considered were the Seleucids, who were the, uh, the kings of the north, and the Ptolemies, who were the kings of the south. And it talks about their involvement against each other and knowing that in between their fighting, there was a land called Israel right in between. So this is, what's the, this is what all the connection is. So now we're dealing with this one person who is being seen from, from the perspective of yet to come. Someone that, that, that kind of bounces right off of the, the character of Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and this is what he's being described as. Uh, he's, neither shall he regard the God of his father. So this dealing with the description of the king of the north leading up to the Antichrist, as with the description of the little horn that we just saw back uh, in chapter 7 and 8, including chapter 12, there, there's a significant expression of brutal persecution. So we go, we go back to those chapters, chapter 8 and chapter uh, 12, well, when we see it in chapter 12, we're, we're going to realize the importance now of the persecution of the Jewish people. And that was mentioned before, and it'll be mentioned again. But the fact that this Antichrist shall not regard the God of his father should not confuse the issue as to whether he was an apostate Jew or something totally different. And as I said, many people began to look at this guy and think that he was an apostate Jew based on some of the things that we see in this passage. He will obviously hate the Jewish people. That's one indication that he's not Jewish. That doesn't mean that Jews don't hate Jews. At times they did. But that doesn't mean that this is what he is and, and, and that, he, that he comes out of, out of uh, uh, Judaism as far as a, a deceiver. There have been deceivers that come out of it because, you know, a Jew is not a Jew by just birth. He's a Jew, he's a Jew you know, because of who, who they believe in, actually. If you read that in, in the book of Romans. But consider, if we are dealing with his disregard for the God of his fathers, which God would that be, see? If he is disregarding the God of his fathers, who is that God? Let's not forget. Let's not forget that Muslims continue to have a high regard for the patriarch Abraham. Muslims have a high regard for Abraham. Because he was the father of Ishmael. Through Hagar, which was Sarah's handmaid. Ishmael, of course, is considered the father of the Arab peoples. Hence, making Abraham's God the God of the Antichrist's father. If possible, you know, the possibility, of course. However, not all Muslims are Arabs. Some are Persian. Others are Assyrian. Still others are Chaldean and so forth. Yet interestingly enough, Abraham's God and the God of Islam, Allah, are not the same. Uh, Would you please tell that to the majority of world leaders today who continue to want to say, well, you know, we have the same God. We don't. We do not have the same God. So this, this is where this is where this 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 contention lies. 
They revere Abraham as a patriarch, but they do not regard his God as a whole. In that case, Islam as, as a whole does not regard the God of their fathers. And so, by showing a disregard for the God of his fathers, Antichrist is in effect not going to show any respect whatsoever toward his own religious heritage in order to gain superior, uh, superiority over all religions, which is bound to happen as we saw in, when we studied Revelation and as we're seeing heading toward uh, the end of the book of Revelation. I'm, I'm sorry, the book of Daniel. So in fact, he will not regard any God whatsoever in order to exalt himself as the single object or the singular object of worship. That is eventually what it is coming down to. Now, stop there for just a moment and remember this, that in Islam there is this expectation for their own uh, Messiah to appear. They call him the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I, Mahdi. And uh, even though the, the various forms of Islam all have a kind of a different perspective on on Mahdi, they all, they all believe that he's going to come. In fact, there were those Muslims who came to Christ that were, that were reading the Bible, and when they read about the Antichrist, they kept saying, that sounds like our Mahdi. So the, the Antichrist is their Mahdi. And, and this is how they described it. So, in effect, they're going to worship the Mahdi. There are those who believe that this Antichrist will appear then as this Mahdi of, of, of Islam. So just, again, we're, we're looking forward and trying to best see what's happening in the world and in the scriptures and put a lot of stuff together. So this worship of this Mahdi or this Antichrist is something, by the way, that is granted to him by the dragon who is Satan himself. And we saw that in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 5, so I want you all to see it once again. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, John says. The sea actually describing, it is a word to describe all the nations of, of the world. All the nations, in, in particular, the Gentile nations. The sea is describing that. I stood upon the sand of the sea and, I, and, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. There's the first indication there for us of a beast mentioned in the book of Revelation. Not the first mention, but the fact for us here tonight. Having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names, or the name of blasphemy. And remember... All he speaks is blasphemy against the God of Abraham, or the God of Israel. And the beast, which I saw, was like unto a leopard. And I under, underline these, these uh, animals that are, that are seen in this vision for a reason. The beast, which I saw, was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Now, 
we saw those animals before, didn't we? In our study of the book of Daniel. In the vision that was given to Daniel. And it's interesting that these, these animals mentioned here describe actually the Gentile nations. Certain Gentile nations. You know, the lion was, was, was Babylon, the, the, the bear of Persia and, and uh, Medo-Persia and, and, and the leopard, you know, the, the, Greece, the Grecians. So um, I'm saying that again based on this thing about disregarding the God of his fathers and that the description of this person being an apostate Jew would not fit because here he, here he is, the beast, was like a leopard, bear, and lion. So those are, those are descriptions of Gentile nations, not Jew, not Jewish. And that I wanted to point out as we go on. Uh, the rest of the verse says, And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So the beast receives that authority for the, for the sake of being worshipped along with the dragon. Now that's an interesting thing too, because when you think about it, in the book of Psalms we are told about God calling His Lord, speaking of His Son, allowing His Son to be also called Lord, but there's only one Lord and one God. So, Jesus is given all praise, honor, and glory, because He is God the Son. So in effect, so in this Trinity, that is this unholy trinity of, of Satan, the dragon, and the beast, and the, then the false prophet as well. There's this kind of unholy trinity. So some things kind of try to line up uh, as, as the real thing, and, but it's all deception. So the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after. After the beast, and when we studied this back in Revelation a few years, well, about a year ago or so, then we were dealing with a very the very same thing where it's just deception. It's, it's trying to copy the pattern of what, what Christ did. And then it says in verse 4, They worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And then it says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. That really dealing then at that point with the last half of the tribulation period. So that, that kind of sums up then what we're looking at when it comes to disregarding the God of his fathers. Something to consider, something to think about. But the, by the way, the God, the God of his fathers, the word for God there is Elohim, which is a word that is used for God, but it's, it's, a, it's a word in the plural. Uh, but it's, you know, again, the Bible teaches us there's only one God, yet we realize that it's dealing with a, 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 a composite God in a sense. We, we consider it as, as believers in Jesus Christ, of course, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three are one. And uh, but yet, uh, if you remember when God spoke to uh, people early on in the book of Genesis, he said, let us make man in our image. There's only one God, but he calls 
you know, this one God is at times Elohim. But, it, but then the word Elohim can also mean uh, little gods or gods, as it does a couple of times, once in the book of Psalms and in another, in a, another few places. Talking about gods, uses that particular term. So, anyway, with that in mind, we go on to the next passage that we need to look at in verse 37. He shall not regard the desire of women. Now, I, I put it this way, because in the text it says, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. So grammatically speaking, this is what it says. He shall not regard the desire of women. So first of all, let's take care of one issue right up front, right away. This does not in any way describe the Antichrist as being a homosexual. Now, I say that because years ago there were tracts that were given out, uh, you know, talking about the coming Antichrist. And this was many years ago. I'm talking about 30, 35, 40 years ago. Tracks, you know, trying to you know, point out the fact that, you know, when, when, when the Antichrist comes, he's going to be some fair-skinned European guy, probably French, and, and, and he's a homosexual. That's, that's exactly how this, this particular uh, <laughs> track drew him up, you know, because it was a kind of cartoon-type track, you know. And I'm not going to just, you know, act it out, but, you know, you understand. So th- this doesn't in any way, what, what, this, what this statement says is, is not in any way describing the Antichrist being a homosexual. So that we have to throw that out right away. Now I want you to notice that the text does not say, the text itself does not say he does not desire women. I've actually heard some preachers and teachers say that. He does not desire women. That is not what the text says. It says that neither shall he regard the desire of women. He does not regard the desire of women. Just like if I would not be regarding someone's desire for something. So that he's, so it's talking about the, the Antichrist not regarding the desire of women. The, whatever women's desire may be, he doesn't desire it or he doesn't regard it. So you see how we can twist the scripture to say something that it doesn't say. But this phrase can actually be interpreted a couple of ways. It is believed that some, uh, by some that this phrase means that Antichrist will reject the Lord Jesus Christ having no regard for him whatsoever. More than likely, the person desired by, woman, by women is a reference to Christ. Based on a passage in Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7. I'll, let me read it to you. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The desire of all nations is speaking of Messiah. The desire of all nations. So based on that, it is believed that the privilege of giving birth to the promised Messiah was the desire of some Jewish women down through history. That they would desire to be the one to, to bring the seed of, of, you know, uh, of woman to, to this earth. That was what it said was their desire. I don't know that. Uh, when you read about Mary... When the angel appears to her, 
and says, Mary, do not be afraid. The Holy Spirit shall overcome you and, and you will be filled and you will have, you, you'll bring forth the Messiah. I think the immediate, you know, if, if you look at it carefully, the immediate response was, was really one of fear. And it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't give us really any indication that that's what she was praying for, that's what she was hoping, oh, let me be the one. She had enough problems to begin with, didn't she? She was already being accused of something. You know, everybody would say, oh my goodness, you know, Joseph and her. and you know, We need to stone her, whatever. I'm sure somebody's already trying to do that. So I, I'm not really sure about this particular viewpoint. Others believe now that the desire of women speaks of deities which were worshipped and desired by women. That's a, that's a possibility if, if you go back to the desire of women. It's speaking of, in fact, some, some form of, uh, of worship. When you think about this, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God. So with that phrase in mind, it's very possible, you know, that you, you think of, uh, you know, these household gods that people used to have. Women used to have them in their homes. Uh, they've, they've discovered uh, through excavations and, and even in Israel, you know, that they had the, 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 in their household, they had these little gods that they worshipped. So it's, it's possible. That's possible. But there's something else to consider. And that is, in, a, in the form of a question, let me ask, is there a religion that almost completely disregards the general desires of women and keeps women in a subjugated, dominated state. I can think of one that is prominent in this kind of area. So that's another possibility. If we kind of add to the profile of this, of this Antichrist, if we, if we stay somewhat consistent with what we've been looking at so far concerning Islam and all of that, that that's a possibility as well. It's just something, again, to, to consider and to think about. But then it says uh, that he will not regard any god, and I already touched upon that on the earlier uh, phrase, but then the next phrase, he shall magnify himself above all. He shall magnify himself above all. Now, we have already found parallels to this in 2 Thessalonians. Let me take you there for two verses. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Because here Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, speaking of the day of of the Lord, which is speaking of that seven-year period of tribulation, but he says, For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Except there come a falling away first. Now the word there is apostasia. Apostasia. We get the word apostasy. Um, The word itself also means departure. Apostasia also can be translated as departure. Uh, 
So if you read it in, in one way, except there come a, a, an apostasy first. I think we live today in a time where there is great apostasy in, the, in, the, in, in what is called the Christian faith. A lot of people have fallen away from the true faith and they're going after other things and other ideas and other, in effect, other gods. Rather than stay faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, staying faithful to, to the Word of God. So there is an apostasy and it's already taking place. But if we were to consider it as a, as a departure, except there come a departure first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, there are some people who actually believe that that word departure there fits this when it, when it describes the rapture of the church before the revealing of the Antichrist. Uh, so, something to think about again, but uh, nonetheless, an apostasy fits pretty good there too. So, but, but notice this. That man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself. This is what we wanted to get to. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So he opposes God. He opposes Jesus Christ. He opposes everything about what we believe to be true and, and, and glorious and right. And he exalts himself above all that is called God. Or that is worship, so that he is, he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul reveals in in Scripture here, under the uh, authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, under the very uh, 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 inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to say what he says here. He, he's prophesying now that there is a a person who is going to go into the temple. And sit as, as if he is God, showing himself to be God, in the very same place where Antiochus Epiphanes went in and sacrificed a pig on the altar, and eventually he, he placed a, 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 a statue or a, a, an image of Zeus on, on the most holy place. So that was the abomination of desolation. This one is actually a greater abomination. Antiochus himself didn't sit on the throne, but this guy will. So, he's obviously a chip off the old block. Because if he is certainly one who is here by, by, by the sake of, uh, of Satan himself, of course, Satan can't do anything unless God allows him. But it's already written, so it has been allowed. Yet he's just like Satan. And he represents Satan. And what do we know about Satan from Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12? When once he was called Lucifer. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? Interesting here. I know I keep bringing this stuff up, but it's just an interesting thing. You know that this phrase, uh, son of the morning, has uh, um, literally in, in, in the Hebrew, it uses a word for crescent. The crescent moon. <laughs> Just thought I'd mention that. 
How art thou cut down to the ground which this week in the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. The very same boast. The five I wills of Lucifer. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He definitely had an eye problem. But he describes exactly the very same attitude as the Antichrist who exalts himself above everything that is worshipped, that is to be truly worshipped. And he wants the worship for himself. If you go back to uh, Revelation 13 for just a moment, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> there in verse 5 it says, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. That's where we left off last time. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned what it meant to be blaspheming, what, what it meant to blaspheme. It means to deny, to deny God, to deny his power, to deny everything about him, to deny his word, to deny his son, to deny everything about God. It's, it's just a matter of denying everything. It isn't just a matter of cursing out God or cursing things of God. It's about denying it, denying the Lord himself. And in verse 7 it says, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Isn't that interesting? All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. Very strange thing here when, when you consider this. I think sometimes we, we, we go over this passage too quickly and we, we tend to forget that when somebody is so oppressive like, like a leader that this person is going to be, like some people have tried to be over the years, like Hitler and others. Um, what we tend to forget is when they worship him, are, are they worshiping him because they want to or because they have to? Either way, if they want to or if they don't want to, but they have to, either way, their, book, their names aren't written in the book of life. They would rather worship somebody to save their life but yet, what does the Bible say? He who saves his life shall lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake shall save it. I mean, what, what, a, what, a, what a paradox all of this is. Isn't that an, it's just an interesting thing that, you know, when you think about it, people don't want controversy. They don't, they don't, well, if, if I can get away from just one more thing, I'll just, I just won't say anything. But your silence says everything. And this is why it's so important for us to stand for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to speak the words of life because that's what God has given us to speak. So, his God will be Satan. His God will be Satan. 
who will give him his throne and global power. So let's look at verses 38 and 39. We've got to close with this here very shortly. Daniel 11:38 says, But in his estate shall he honor the God of fortresses. This is who he worships. The God of fortresses or forces. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. And thus shall he do in the most strong holes with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. While there are those who believe that the God of forces or fortresses is an imperial state that will function as the supreme power to whom all citizens owe or to owe their allegiance. And, and there are some people who, who believe that, that that's what this is, that the God of forces or the God of fortresses is really just the state itself. In other words, uh, the state oversees everything. You know, the, uh, but there's leaders in the state, of course. But, but that's, this is how they, how they generalize it. Uh, it, it seems much clearer to understand that the God of forces is in fact a God of war. It is a God of war. A God whom his fathers knew not. Because if we go all the way back to the only true God, our God, the God of creation, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our God is not a God of war. Therefore, He was a, a, a God, the, the God that this Antichrist now worships, as it were, is a God whom His fathers knew not. It stands to reason that the one God of war today But the one God of war is the God of, of Islam. I know I've been kind of like, I feel like I, I have a single string on my guitar here tonight, but these are things that we need to see. We didn't see them years ago. We didn't consider them this way. And I, and I can say this, I, I, I rejoice when I hear the many testimonies of Muslims who have had visitations at night of either an angel or even the Lord himself coming to say, I died for you. And they awaken calling out for Jesus. And I rejoice that the Lord is, is, is reaching and, 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 and reaching a number of, of, of Muslims for Christ. By the way, once they come to Christ, they're no longer Muslim. Now they're believers in Jesus Christ. Whatever we were before we were Christians, whatever it was, I mean, you know, we're no longer that. We're, we, we, we're believers in Jesus Christ. We belong to Him. We're His people. So it's hard at times, you know, to have to bring forth some of these things, but it's so important because, you see, this particular religion is in complete opposition to the God of life, to the God of peace, to the God of love, to the God of mercy, and the God of grace. And the bottom line is this. 
Satan is the God of forces. Satan is the God of forces. The Antichrist will be indwelt by Satan, Satan, much like Hitler was. He was truly. I mean, if, if you've ever spent any amount of time, I don't know if you watch the History Channel or uh, American Heroes Channel, which used to be the military channel. But, uh, you know, every documentary that I, I think I've seen every documentary on Hitler. But every time I see it, I've read all the books too. Every time I see that, and I see these pictures of him, you know, speaking, you, you could tell that he was possessed. Possessed. I mean, how it, it, it reminds you then of this little horn, right? Why is he described as a little horn? Because he starts off as a little horn, and all of a sudden, a little horn becomes this ominous creature. And what was Hitler when he began? He was a house painter. He used to paint houses. And he was a failed artist. He, he, he didn't become a very good artist. How did he become the Chancellor of Germany and eventually the Fuhrer of Nazi Germany with, a, with the intention of killing all the Jews? That was his final solution. Get rid of all the Jews. How does that happen? So this Antichrist will be indwelt by Satan And Satan is the instigator of war. He, through Antichrist, will glorify war. As we see in the case of ISIS, and Al-Qaeda, and Hamas, and Hezbollah, and every other group of, of its type. In regards to the gold, and the silver, and the precious stones, and the pleasant things mentioned, it is interesting that the, that the ISIS caliphate, the, their attempt to become a caliphate, you know, of, of gathering together other, other nations under one caliph or, or ruler. It's being formed right now, but it has the intention. It has the intention of minting their own coinage as at the beginning of Islam in the time of their prophet. Back in the 7th century, they minted their own coins. Coins of various metals and denominations were minted in the 7th century with one thing in common. The phrase that continues to be expounded today that they write on their, on their foreheads, they write it on their armbands and whatever else. There is no God but Allah. There's no prophet but Muhammad. And their, and their, and, and their desire, their, 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 their drive is world domination. It's in the Quran. It's in their writings. And it's brought so much deception to people. Why? Because even after 9-11, immediately after 9-11, we're over here defending them. And we say, well, it's really a peaceful religion. Well, I've read much of the Quran and I haven't found the... Well, I have found the peace. The only peace you find is that if you turn... You have to... You have to come to Allah... Uh, that's that's the only time you'll get peace. If not, unfortunately. Much of the world's financial woes will be brought into subjection 
through some sort of military power and expansion of the wicked one's dominion. This is what we're looking at in verse 39, 38 and 39. I'm going to expand on this more next time because of the last few verses of chapter 11. But lastly, verse 39 has some significant statements. Verse 39. There will be nations that will join Antichrist in striking at Israel. Those who support him will be rewarded with wealth, honor, position, and power. (coughs) Excuse me. But what is more striking is that his intentions will be to carve up the land of Israel and apportion it to his most trusted followers. That's that last phrase. He shall divide the land for gain. The land is speaking of Israel. He shall divide the land. And yet the the Lord himself says, my land is not to be divided. It is my land. And hence, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, it says, the land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. If he says that to his own people, and he says, look, you're just strangers and sojourners. I'm giving you the land, but the land's mine. So what is it that Satan wants to do? He wants to take everything that belongs to God and, 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 and do everything that God says not to do. Everything. And so that's his, that's his intent, to divide the land. And yet God says, no, it's my land. So a time will come when God will deal with that. And that's what we're aiming toward in chapter 12. We're getting there. But one more section in chapter 11, and then we'll finish that off and get right into chapter 12. All right, this was... an interesting time here tonight. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for helping us to understand, resolve some things that we see in the scriptures about about the last days, about the Antichrist. Lord, I I am so thankful, Lord, tonight. I'm, I'm so thankful to be able to say that we here as your sons and daughters, we here are not looking for Antichrist. We are looking for Jesus Christ. We are looking for our Lord and Savior to return as he said he would. We are looking up and lifting up our heads because our redemption draws near. And we are thankful, Lord, that we have this opportunity and this time to look at these things to consider them somewhat in a new light. Uh, We still are wanting to see more and more revealed. A lot has been revealed since we began this journey with you many years ago. And since then, Father, we we realize the the necessity of, of, of just staying faithful to your word. There may be some things, Lord God, that uh, will happen that will help us to understand better what we're looking at, but we want to continue to look and we want to continue to study and we want to continue to grow. But most importantly, Lord, we want to continue to live right before you and honor you until the day of Jesus Christ. So, Father, thank you. Thank you so much for giving us this opportunity. Continue, Lord God, to strengthen us, teach us, and and make us teachable each and every day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the Lord bless you mightily, give you a rest tonight, give you strength tomorrow. May he encourage you. May the joy of the Lord be your strength. May you have every opportunity to take time to spend with him in his word and in prayer. Take time to enjoy him and his presence. And every day be ready. Every day be ready and keep looking up. Your redemption, our redemption draws near.